Before we start, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which I'm recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'd also like to acknowledge those listening with lived experience, both in mental health and suicide. I'd like to extend that to their parents, their families, their carers, their guardians, their friends, and their wider circle of clinical support. Following on from last week, I got to catch up with the University of Sydney's research program, Right Care First Time Where You Live, funded by the BHP Foundation. However, this week I spoke with their first program site, ACT Health. ACT Health services the nation's capital here in Australia. I interviewed trailblazing lived experience advocate for youth mental health, Josephine Brogdon, alongside the catchment's general coordinator, Dr. Elizabeth Moore. Both Elizabeth and Joey speak passionately to the troubles facing young people in the community and how they subsequently impact their mental health. We also spoke about the upcoming program workshop, one of three, where the mapping foundations are laid by those residents of the community, decision makers, consumers and carers, policy reps and clinical providers. Dr. Elizabeth Moore and Josephine Brogdon, thank you so much for joining me on my podcast and what is going to be an incredible program, Right Care First Time Where You Live funded by the BHP Foundation and headed up by uh, Sydney University's Brain and Mind Centre. From my understanding, ACT Health is the first uh, program site. And I mean, I don't know about both either of you, but to me, that's so exciting and important to be starting, you know, somewhat at our nation's capital, <laughs> which is kind of nice as well. And we'll be visiting there next week. So this episode will be launching, or technically we'll be visiting, by the time this is launched, we'll be visiting tomorrow, which is really exciting for the first workshop. So thank you and welcome. Thanks, Sam. Yeah, hi. Thanks so much for having us. (laughs) The pleasure is all mine. So to jump straight in, I guess, Elizabeth, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a bit about who ACT Health is and who the community is that they serve. What's the sort of breakdown, I guess? Yeah, no, thanks, Sam. And yeah, just like to reinforce, you know, ACT may be small, but we try to punch above our weight. Yes. Lots of passionate people in the ACT about mental health. I'm actually in the Office for Mental Health and Wellbeing. And that's uh, an office that was set up by the government because it recognised that mental health just didn't belong to health. It belonged to the whole of the ACT government and the whole of community. And this project actually fits really well in that space. ACT itself... uh, I think we've got roughly 440,000 people, uh, rough gender balance, few peculiarities about the ACT. We're highly educated and highly anxious. (laughs) (laughs) And that anxiety has actually only increased with COVID. So we've had some really interesting changes over COVID. We've been particularly concerned about our young people uh, and the, the problems with COVID have exacerbated some of that underlying anxiety. But of course, there are other groups, particularly those uh, that are more disadvantaged, that have also suffered with COVID. 
Although the ACT is that small, 440,000-odd, we do serve the larger, greater Canberra region. And that means that we do service people outside of the ACT, but this project is particularly looking at the ACT. In terms of our services, we have an acute mental health service system. We have a a higher proportion of non-government agencies than most of the rest of Australia. So we do have... I think quite a nice continuum of care, but of course there are always gaps. There are gaps in our ability to collaborate across sectors, especially mental health and drug and alcohol. And we know that we need to look at perhaps things more in the population level. There's lots of research out there around adverse childhood experience and how that leads to mental illness. And it'd be really nice to actually use this project to look at what we can do in terms of our interventions that actually has best bang for the buck, but also won't cause any distress. Elizabeth, you mentioned that the catchment is just not just the ACT and the the, the capital, I guess, but it goes outside of that. Are you able to elaborate, I guess, or, or detail where the catchment is? Is it you know, just outside of Canberra is like 10 minutes outside of Canberra and, you know, inclusive, or is it a bit further? It varies on the specialty that you're serving. So the Canberra Hospital is a major tertiary hospital for surgery and for uh, some of the medical specialties. And so that means that there has to be a consultation liaison service for people that come in that may come in with a physical illness but have some psychological issues that need attention. We do have strong links with the services outside of the ACT uh, and there's a little bit of movement between the two. That's really cool. I think when hearing about ACT health and, and the community that I guess also the reasons why uh, you guys were excited to jump on board with the program and and why you were a site that was particularly favourable was because of that diversity of experience and I guess demographic in in health and sort of cross-sectional, like you were saying, there's that bit of comorbidity of both physical health and and mental health challenges for, for your community members. What is their, I guess their positioning with ACT Health's positioning with community mental health and and service provision in that sense? So there are strong links with uh, what we would call uh, community support organisations. There are, of course, community clinical services, and it's really important that they work together so that the person at the centre of care gets what they need. I'm sure Joey will speak more to this, but what we would like to see is there is um, a seamless service. We know that there isn't in some cases because people will tell us this. And that's why I'd like to see some of this service modelling actually be able to tell us more. We're working also with Capital Health Network, which is one of our major partners. That's the PHN in the area. And It's unusual. Most PHNs are involved or are the lead agency in the projects that you're doing, but we felt that the office actually had a role in actually taking that on and CHN were very pleased to do that. That's so wonderful. And when you were saying that 
you know, you, you do you do know from, I guess, anecdotally, the for lack of a better term, sort of unable to provide or falling short of what people sometimes often need. And that could be through so many different things. It could be through resources, funding, people on the ground, I guess. And, and I guess also sort of understanding help-seeking individuals and the way that they might be seeking help. You in your position, Elizabeth, what does that feel like when you hear some of that, those tougher times coming back and hearing those stories and, and knowing that you guys are doing everything that you can within your remit to be able to make service access and service provision so much smoother, but there's still obviously anywhere those those slack gaps where some people do do fall between, I guess. Yeah, we've we've had a couple of projects going on in the office, and one of them is actually a youth navigation portal. I was talking about those passionate people. My goodness, the Youth Advisory Council, they have plenty of ideas, and I'm sure there are future prime ministers in that, that group. I've heard incredible things about them. Yep, they're fantastic. And one of the things they put forward that we were very pleased we were able to take forward was this idea of a youth navigation portal. So we tried to map services and we actually found a significant number of services in the youth space, but nobody knew how to access them and what was right. And so we went through a co-design process with many people in Canberra and actually tried to develop a portal that would help navigate through. I think it's really important that what we're trying to do is is make people more aware of what they can do for themselves. So there is a step before help seeking that I think is really important. And that's that population level stuff. So if people understand what's going on with themselves, if they have some strategies that they can be taught, then that's a really important way of actually empowering people to say, hey, I can do this for myself. And when I can't, I will then access help. I talk a lot about digital mental health services. In fact, people are sick of me talking about digital mental health services. (laughs) But actually, there are a lot of youth-friendly digital mental health services. And I talk about the emhprac.org.au, which is actually a Commonwealth website that has apps for anxiety, depression. I, my vision, the vision of the office, which was co-designed, was a kind, connected and informed community working together to promote and protect the mental health and well-being of all. And that means you need interventions at the population base, you need interventions to access and then also the recovery space. So after you've had acute treatment in recovery. Mm. And I think that's so, like you were saying a bit earlier, that aligns so well with this research program because it is the right care. So the the most appropriate care, the care at whatever stage or clinical stage you are at, whether it be acute, whether it be mild um, or severe, right care, first time. So whatever point you're accessing and, and at the first sort of open door, I guess, that you, you walk through, 
wherever you live. And I think that, and, you know, digital health and telehealth, and I, I drone on about digital mental health services as well, Elizabeth, because I think that they are brilliant. They are a wonderful lubricator. They're not a replacement, but a, a brilliant connector and informant for those face-to-face services. You spoke about empowerment and the key importance of that informativity, uh, or is that even a word? Anyways. It is now. <laughs> yeah. Or to go for another one, the informatization. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that is so important for the community and particularly for young people. Joey, I understand that you are a youth advocate within the ACT community and with your within, I guess, your local community. With empowerment and the aim for empowerment uh, for young people in, and like Elizabeth was saying, in knowing how best to support themselves and where to go to when they're seeking or needing that extra bit of external support. What does being an advocate look like for you and, and what are the sorts of things you get, you get to do? Well, for me, um, it's actually kind of funny because I actually was sitting on the Youth Advisory Council oh, amazing. At the that the um, net Youth Navigation por- uh, Portal was being organised and I was a part of some of the consultations that we had had. And so for me, advocacy for me is at a more like formal level. I love being engaged with things like the Youth Advisory Council and with government because I feel like when your voice is heard in that space, it can go very far. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah especially as you can see with the youth navigation portal, I'm very, very appreciative that government has started to notice the importance of youth voice in these areas and understanding that um, youth mental health is an issue and are starting to address it. And I think the youth navigation portal is going to turn out to be an amazing tool. And um, it's, it's like, you know, it's early stages and it's certainly like it was recently launched. So I'm hoping that with years to come, it will become very well known and a very great resource because, I do think that when it comes to um, empowerment and understanding what resources are available and seeking help for yourself, we do have a bit of an issue in the ACT where either there are not many accessible services or there may be, but young people just aren't aware that they exist. And even if they are aware of they exist, how to approach it. So I, I do agree that that is a, um, an important thing to look at. Yeah. So, yeah. It's actually one of the, the things that I am most passionate about advocating for is about the accessibility of services within the ACT because I know that we're small and not as big as other states and we don't have as many um, like available psychologists and professional practitioners. Well, we do, but not as many as bigger states might have. So it's really good to be um, trying to expand that area and making sure that everyone is receiving necessary support. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they're, they're wonderful you know, there's so many, so many things in what you've just said. It's so wonderful to know that co-design is becoming more and more of an alive and thriving thing, right? And I can see you nodding profusely, Elizabeth. I think that one of the key things that we were celebrating yesterday at uh, the BMC's Youth Lived Experience Working Group was the changes in ethics at the University uh, of Sydney and the fact that in all clinical trials there has to be a partnership with people of lived experience, not just a co-design but a partnership and uh, and your ethics won't be approved if, if you don't have that and, and you know, uh, show the planning of, of that. I think it's so wonderful that you pointed out, Joey, that, you know, 
it, it, it's not necessarily the lack of services, but the lack of knowledge about the services, because I think that that's a huge thing. And I know you and I, Joey, talked uh, offline last week about that education model of young people understanding what it actually looks like, what it means. And, and from what I'm understanding, that fits wonderfully into what Elizabeth was saying about, I'm going to forget the other two, but the informed, that whole notion of empowerment, right? The informatization. And I think that's, I think personally, I think it's really warming to hear that, that there is, you know, from you, Joey, it's not just a, uh, it, the, the system is, I'm trying to think of a much more modest way of putting it. The system is broken. The system is messed up. uh, And, you know, we want a complete change. You're not doing anything for us sort of thing. But it's actually more productive in the sense of, you know, there is some ownership on our part, but we also, that ownership means that we want equally ownership in in the shortcomings, but also in, in the desire of like we are in it for the change and we are in it for the long haul and we want to change it for the next group of young people coming through or accessing mental health services. What are some of the key things, Joey, that young people are facing? Last week, I know we talked a lot about school-aged young people and sort of service access or even support, not just service, but support within in schools. And I guess linking also back into what Elizabeth was saying, that sort of mental health literacy as well. But what are some of the key things that that young people are facing today? Yeah, so um, I'm just like one young person, so obviously I can't speak. Yeah, to yeah. But, um, uh, <laughs> but disclaimer, and, like the people that I've like seen around me, the the three main barriers that like in terms of mental health experiences that we're having is like effective timing for accessibility in terms of increasing support. So that's around the long waiting lists. The second one would be financial barriers. And the third one is about, again, in the education system, um, the supports that you may receive at school. And the reason that that one is the biggest one for me, in my opinion, is because when you're young, and especially as like I remember um, Elizabeth was saying earlier, they wanted to look into um people who have come from adverse childhood experiences and the way that impacts your mental health. And as someone who came from like adverse childhood experiences and had a lot of friends in that area, I don't think that the schooling system was ready for that and ready for the mental health challenges that we faced, right? Again, it comes back to mental health literacy and mental health first aid. I don't think that the, I went to a private school from seven to 10 and I don't think that the the staff there were particularly well-versed. And I'm not saying that they have to be like qualified as if they were a counsellor, but being able to um, understand like what a panic attack is, what it looks like, how to handle that situation because in my experience, I would be met with like like yelling and um, being like when I was experiencing panic attack at school, there wasn't, it, you'd be punished for it opposed to being helped through it. And I think like if a kid is, you know, fallen over and hurt their leg, the teacher's first instinct isn't to like yell at them to move or to get frustrated with them. They understand what's happening and they're trying to provide support and they understand how to do that physical first aid. So it'd be great if they had the ability to do that mental first aid because in when you're a young person experiencing mental health issues, a lot of the time you only really have like three main ways of getting support that aren't like in terms of like official, like institutional support. And that would be with family, with friends, and then the third one being school, if you're going to school every day. And I think 
that if you're not receiving support at home and your school does not provide adequate support, it becomes a massive issue and becomes a barrier to your education. So, sorry, I'm going on a little bit of a No, tent. no, no, not at all. This is, this is a thing where it's like um, schools have counsellors because they want to be able to provide that kind of support to students, but then school counsellors themselves um, aren't always readily available. There's long waiting lists to see a school counsellor. School counsellors may not, do, do not have like the ability to assess or diagnose things for neurodivergency. And there's, and there's a lot of issues where, in my experience and friends that I've had, whereas like if you're not receiving that kind of support through the free counsellors at school, you have to then take try and get support outside of that when you're like living at home and if you're if your family is a part of the problem trying to get your trying to organize out of school support is extremely difficult and I think that in contrast to this in year 11 and 12 I went to a public school and that public school had onboard school psychologists and this goes back into like kind of early intervention stuff where it's like that school psychologist gave me an assessment for ADHD and I was able to get early stage diagnosis which many other people my age are not able to do without having to go pay to see psychologists, psychiatrists, bubble outside school. I was able to access that for free. I was able to see a psychologist in a timely, accessible manner just because my school was able to provide it for me. They did the same thing with lawyers and things like that. If that was something that was introduced in earlier ages, like from grade seven to 10, imagine the profound impact it would have on young people's mental health if they're able to receive the essential diagnosis, if they're able to receive mental health support when you're when you're younger you have more like you know neuroplasticity it's easier to unlearn habits at a younger age and it just, it stops you from forming more negative habits and i think that the education system and trying to use the education system to help young people is a big big one <laughs> absolutely elizabeth i saw a lot of subscription uh from you during during joey talking what were some of the i guess some of the things that you were uh, biting to say <laughs> <laughs> yeah no i i think uh, coming back to some of the things that joe joe was saying around literacy and one of the things that we found when we did our children and young persons review was that kids as young as 12 were saying we actually want to know more so that we can understand what other kids are doing and we can support ourselves and support our friends so We've got youth aware of mental health going into year nines in schools in Canberra, and any of the schools can have it, public, private, Catholic schools. And the feedback has been pretty good around actually it's more, we underestimate what kids can do to support each other. And now we're actually looking at something for, say, the 12-year-olds, because they've also been asking for that. And I think that support that Joey talked about was really important. The access issues, yes, again, really important. But what we want to do is create that supportive environment so that kids are understood both by schools, by peers, and they can understand what what's happening to themselves. And I think that's such a huge thing, right? Like uh, last week I spoke with a, an incredible prolific journalist Rebecca Ruiz about the invasion of Ukraine and she wrote a wonderful article for Mashable noting and, and helping us understand how we can best support our own mental health during this time when we are, a, a, a number of us are having trauma responses but maybe 
unaware uh, of us having those and, and how we can place boundaries and how we can better support ourselves and others. But the core part of that was actually looking internally, like you're saying, Elizabeth and Joey, and understanding hold on first, like what's actually happening with me? What am I feeling? Why am I feeling? And who else might be feeling the same? And that I know that uh, we totally do underestimate young people. I underestimate young people all the time. Or whether I underestimate them or whether I am always just like so in awe of what young people can do because I've just forgotten, they are so powerful. They are so brilliant. And I think that's probably why your youth advocacy group uh, Elizabeth, and uh, which you were a part of, Joey, is so wonderful and so present in the changes needed for ACT health because they are so switched on and they are so prepared and they, you know, they know these things. And even that 12-year-olds are calling for more mental health literacy is huge. Like I think we were still, when I was about 12, I'm thinking that's year six, we had sex education and people were still laughing uh, about the word doodle uh, and things like that. Like you, I think back and it's so uh, immature at some points, but this maturity that's coming through and I guess it speaks to the prevalence that mental health is having at younger and younger ages and and you know like both of you were saying is the adverse childhoods that are that are coming through now yeah but i'd, I'd like to do uh, have two points um just reassure joey that neuroplasticity uh, continues you know i'm at the other end of the spectrum yes. joey <laughs> and so it's oh, never yeah, too late so. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm well aware yeah. <laughs> yeah. um and the other thing is uh, really around, I think there's a great deal of literature around actually the use of electronic devices and a fabulous paper produced some years ago showed the rise of electronic devices and the decrease in psychological well-being. So psychological well-being, I think, is really complex. And part of what we need to teach people is how to use devices properly this is great. You know, being able to do a podcast with you in a different part of the world, fabulous. Yeah, yeah. Um, but actually that, um, I think they call it FOMO, fear of missing out. And and that constant stream of information, bad news, Facebook feeds. You know, if you do have a trauma response, the worst thing you can do at the moment is to be having your Facebook feed feed you all of these things from the Ukraine or from Afghanistan uh, or any of the other places that there's conflict in the world. Yeah, it's so true. And it's really interesting. I've noticed a lot in the younger ages or the next generation that they are calling for more realism on social media. They are, you know, even just on their their posts and their like social media tiles, they're not putting filters over the top. Whereas, you know, the, my generation, the generation before are still very much filter orientated, but it does still uh, chafe against the commodity that is social media influencers, right? Influencers, right? And I was reading, Rebecca Rue has put me onto a paper uh, or some research by, uh, Dr. E. Allison Holman, 
and Dr. Roxanne Silver around that trauma response, but then furthermore, the susceptibility, those who are experiencing a more depressed state uh, or lack in mental well-being, they're more susceptible to misinformation, which, uh, you know, is is really tragic and, and can sometimes lead us to conspiracy theories and all sorts of things To and trying not to get political on that or too uh, outrageous with that situation. But it is really interesting and I think that that is something that is so hard from, I, I know I am so guilty of FOMO and looking, you know, at my Instagram feed and seeing people and being like, why wasn't I at that? Or, you know, things like that. Or I was talking with a friend the other day and she sent me a text and she was like, do you ever just feel the urge to post? Have nothing to post about, but feel the urge to post. And I felt so read by that. And I'm not sure if you feel the same, Joey, but where it's like there is that urge to just put something out there. And I think that's due to the dopamine response, right, of having people being like, yeah, I like that, or sending hearts or flame emojis or all sorts of things to sort of feel that peer support and that peer connection when it's not really providing it at all. (laughs) And, and I think that that is what it comes down to is that this is how we, like the newer generations, us young people, connect with each other, right? It's like as, as harmful as social media and a lot of platforms can be, and I know that they are, um, there are also, as you're saying, we need to learn how to use them for good because there are amazing communities and safe spaces online that young people are also engaging with where you can feel supported and you can get help through your peers instantly. Like you can, you can send a text, you can FaceTime your friends, like using this amazing technology when you're feeling alone or isolated, especially if you're coming from like a, um, you know, adverse childhood experiences or a poor home situation, having the ability to have that kind of immediate escapism that isn't just on your own because like you know you can do escapism in the form of like you know watching tv shows uh imaginative play reading etc etc but having more of the escapism where even if you're not genuinely connecting you feel connected and i think that there is being as you're saying a big push to try and change the way that young people have been using social media to try and step away from the harmful effects especially in regards to things like body dysmorphia uh eating uh, disorders, all those kind of things, body image and the, the extreme negative impacts it has on young people and then their mental well-being and mental health. I think the the two main scary things about the internet are the, the echo chambers and the way that they are, uh, how quickly it is to, again, not to get like too political, but how quickly it is to become like fall into a pit and into a cycle, especially when you are mentally vulnerable and mentally unwell. It's people will try and find support in any way that they can. And I think providing support using technology is the way to go because, you know, that's that's what we do. It's, it's a, in, the, in the 90s and early years they had the medium through things like magazines and you had giant celebrity culture, which is similar to influencer culture but also completely different because the parasocial relationships are all different. But the <laughs> point, point stands is that, like, it's just a new medium and there's new ways that we need to tackle it. Um, and obviously technological support is never going to be a replacement, as you were saying earlier, for other kinds of support, but it does help as, like, a transitional kind of support um, and uh, an effective immediate kind of 
support while you try to tackle deeper issues. I don't know if anything I just had made sense, but <laughs> trying to <laughs> completely made sense. And and I could see Elizabeth also was nodding and agreeing as much as I was. I think there is something so profound in like you were saying before, Elizabeth, about looking and understanding why you are feeling something yourself and then being able to productively put in these barriers or these boundaries to whether it be a screen time alert, whether it be uh, curating your social following. So it's, you know, people that aren't going to be or aspirations that you feel are unattainable or you feel very much, you know, hashtag unblessed in, I guess, uh, as opposed to hashtag blessed and being able to do that, like, uh, to bring it up again, I was last week's episode, uh, silver, the, the researcher has said that she has stopped consuming all visual uh, representation from Ukraine's invasion, uh, and Russia, because that is one way that she's able to mitigate and navigate her trauma response to such events and such images and she she still reads the headlines and things like that but also she puts a cap on it and I thought that that was really wonderful to actually hear that and and she said I don't feel any less compassion I still feel hugely for it but I I know that in order to be productive in that sense I need to control what I'm consuming and I think that's the same with Things like social media is that. Yeah, uh, 100%. And I think it, again, comes back down to educating young people on how to navigate the social media sphere, right? Like when I, I remember when I was younger and, you know, internet's booming off, we had classes on how to avoid, like, scammers on the internet and we, like, learned the base oh, amazing. internet safety. And, yeah, which is, which is amazing. Like that's a very important skill to have, especially at a young age. Mm. And to expand that further, educating young people on how to navigate social media, how to do those things. Because a lot of apps do have ways for you to block out specific tags or specific words so you can try and avoid being triggered by specific content. But there are gaps to it and it's not always effective. And not everyone knows that these are options. And so helping young people navigate the social media sphere and the internet in general, I think, is a priority in terms of young people's safety. Because, like, we you know, at school we got taught about cyberbullying and whatnot, um, which is great. But And, again, same sort of thing in terms of body image. We were taught about how magazines and ads are using a lot of Photoshop and blah, 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 and which is great. And I feel like that now needs to be taken forward. Like, you can easily edit videos from any app on your phone now. You don't need... Photoshop. You can change the way your body looks in a moving video using free apps. So, and a lot of people aren't aware of this or the Instagram filters and the the how how seamless they are when you move and you talk and you. I don't know if you guys have seen them, but they're kind of crazy. They are, and yeah, yeah. and and <laughs> kind of bringing that back to the idea where it's like we know that we like. I grew up very aware that oh yeah, everything on the internet is like it's usually photoshopped, but it didn't hit me until very recently. I was like, oh, my God, all these videos are edited too. Like I thought that these were real. Like even though I didn't know, like even though I thought they weren't real, it was still, I, I can't really explain it. And that was through personal discovery. Yeah. I, I, I saw someone post a video on Instagram about like a before and after being like, like it was it was a positive uh, message, which is the idea of a, this is what like my real body looks like. Be aware that these kinds of like a lot of people are editing videos and like it was that kind of video where it showed 
how she looked before and then how she edited herself in around the span of 15 minutes and what that meant for everyone kind of thing. And, and, and I didn't, I wasn't aware of that. And I don't know if that's just because I'm living under a rock or <laughs> like I knew of face, face app or face, face, face chin. chin. Yeah. 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 And then no filter filter. <laughs> yeah. No filter filters. It's just, it's just crazy. But I do think that social media is an amazing thing at the end of the day in terms of helping young people connect to other, helping each other find communities. It is great when used in the right way. And when you learn, when you learn how to navigate it, in a way that benefits you the best, then, yeah. Elizabeth, you mentioned before the uh, young adult, the the youth review that ACT Health has uh, did, was it 2019 or 2020? Gosh, Uh, COVID (laughs) has just made my mind, you know, I did. Right? Yes. Yes. Um, 19, I think. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because some of the, when I was, sort of reading it, the both there was three sort of sets of identifications of, of uh, challenges, mental health challenges that were met, uh, being met by young people. The first was identified by young people. Then there was identified by service provision like clinicians and things. And then also support networks like carers of young people. I think that it was those three. And they all had the, almost the same maybe in different percentages, but they were all pretty much the same. And from this conversation, it very much backs the fact that a lot of those exist within schooling communities and all that schooling age where it's peer pressure, it's things like hormonal changes leading to relationship troubles and uh, social media being a huge one and assessment stress and things like that on top of all the other things that, that young people are already doing and, and feeling the responsibility for. Elizabeth, what are some of the, you touched on uh, the, the navigation tool that Joey and the rest of the council helped co-design. What are some other support networks and systems that ACT have for young people that are available, I guess, in the spirit of informing? Uh, the Youth Navigation Portal was an access tool. So it's an information and access tool. We then went into actually looking at educating young people. So that was the youth aware of mental health. We also do, um, we have a project at the moment, which is colloquially called the missing middle. Love. yeah, um, it, it means different things to different people, by the way. Mm. But we, what we mean by missing middle is those kids that are too severe for primary care but don't meet the criteria for CAMS. Mm. So child and adolescent mental health services. And so hard. What, it is. It's really difficult because mm. we've, we've actually done a co-design process over the last oh, almost 12 months actually looking at what might be best for those kids in terms of support. And obviously, we'd like to start it upstream. So we'd like to, to really stop it from happening. But, you know, even I think that's utopian. But we're, we, will, we will get there. So that's looking at the education of parents, the education of the population around actually adverse childhood experience. And, you know, if there's family violence, we've, we've actually got an office for family safety, which is looking at what can we do in community 
to actually decrease the family violence and how can we pick it up earlier? And we work very closely with them, knowing that it's so important. That's so fantastic. Mm. I think so. I think ACT has a lot going for it. (laughs) Yes. The other thing that we want to emphasize is there's an actually a heck of a lot of evidence around physical activity and mental well-being. And some of those things around um, what we would call green prescriptions, and some people call them park prescriptions. So that is, you know, get out into your natural environment, experience nature, brings on mindfulness, you know, gets you active, gets your sleep patterns back together. Sleep is really important, Joey and uh, Sam, really important. There was actually a parliamentary inquiry into sleep. Really? Wow. About three years ago. Um, Because, of course, we have a lot of shift workers. We have a lot of people who've had their sleep patterns actually disturbed by the amount of electronic devices around. And it showed the value of regular sleep and you know, educating people about what they can do to get that sleep in order to maintain mental and physical well-being is really important because sleep not only affects your mental well-being, but actually is associated with more chronic disease. So, you know, these things are really important. We are doing a lot of work in that space in terms of actually trying to inform community. We've got a children and young persons community of practice, which is mostly service providers that come together. But of course, young people are welcome as well. Problem is, it's during school time. (laughs) (laughs) What can you do? Yeah. Um, So that's that's looking at things like how do we actually connect the services uh, together, making services aware of what's missing, you know, making services aware of what other services are out there so that they can refer appropriately or connect appropriately. Yeah, and and mitigate that missing middle, right? Not just the the CAMS missing middle, but also into, well, I guess that is into service. Yeah, uh, yes, it is. Yeah. And and that's what the feedback we get also from parents, you know, the, the frustration there that their child is having to fit into a service rather than the service wrapping around the child. And some of that is around structural difficulties, but uh, there's a great deal of willingness to change that. That's so wonderful. I think I'm definitely a subscriber to the romantics uh, notion of nature having a restorative power over humanity and, you know, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was a total exploration of that. And and I think that, uh, well, I, I mean, we were part of, uh, we did some research at the Brain and Mind Centre. Uh, I mean, it's still going on around circadian rhythms and sleep-wake cycles. And COVID has seen even more of a disruption in, in those sleep patterns. With uh, There was one young man who, he lost his job uh, due to COVID and so he had to do shelf packing in order to uh, subsidise rent and things like that. But those shelf packing jobs were in the middle of the night and and then he had uni the next day and, and it just became this total schmozzle that, that really affected his mental health. And, 
and I think one of the things that came out of that that study uh, is the understanding what sleep is like for you particularly and you know that uh, a lot of the young people were like the blanket prescription of eight hours a night is horrible because you have the anxiety that oh my gosh I'm not am I going to get eight hours sleep did I not get eight hours sleep the night like last night like was it eight hours restful sleep or was it eight hours interrupted sleep and you know working with your clinician to actually understand what that means and how that I guess, uh, affects you as an individual. Two final questions. Uh, Joey, with this research program uh, with BHPM, the Brain and Mind Centre, Right Care First Time, where you live, what is one core thing that you're hoping to see affected or changed or improved um, with this uh, dynamic systems, huge word, uh, dynamic systems modeling uh, and uh, this decision support tool that comes out of that and being able to understand the structure and the way in which individuals move in and out. One of the things that I'm actually most excited for is the potential ripple effect that it can have. So obviously there's the the the, the immediate thing that I'm very like hoping to achieve and excited for, which is the idea that we will accurately be able to represent what will identify the gaps in the current systems we provide and then identify what we can do to kind of fix it based on what young people think will help them the most. And I think I'm really excited to see that being used, the way that it's going to be used in government and having people listen to it. And I think that if this then has the power to make change and that 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 is an effective change and it works well and we're seeing that the, the these gaps are closing that these needs are being more accurately met i'm hoping that other areas of government will recognize the the value of doing collaborative work with young people and people with lived experience and having such a multi-step process that really does engage like with young people at every single level and i'm seeing i'm hoping that which I'm hoping it will and it, it should, if this does create like a, a effective change, I'm hoping that that change will be recognised and people will recognise that this kind of collaborative process is the way that we should be kind of moving forward in a lot of ways. In terms of like specific things that I'd like to see fixed, I'm really hoping that, again, the missing middle that Elizabeth talk, um, was talking about is one of the things that I think definitely needs to be looked at i really really hoping that we can try and uh, the, the way the way that you put it was perfect the idea of having services wrap around a young person rather than having the young person trying to fit into a service being told that you're you're too unwell but not unwell enough to get support the, the, trying to tackle those really long waiting times and trying to make mental health services more affordable and accessible and if we do not have, we find this like a significant gap in specific areas, finding ways to implement new services, et cetera, et cetera. I'm just overall very excited for all the little different changes that can come from it. It's not one thing in particular. And I can't really say what the outcome is going to be because it's going to be a process where, again, with all the workshops, we're working with a, a wide range of young people and their opinions and their experiences. So for me to say that, oh, I hope it fixes this specific issue is like i don't know it, it's not really like accurate of what i think is going somewhat to be. premature 
Yeah, yeah, because it's a bit pressure because it's, it's like, oh, well, I had this issue in school and I think this would be good to be fixed. But that being said, that might not be as much of a prevalent issue as, like, my experience and the experience of those around me. So it would be good to see the differences of how everyone's gone through that. But, yeah. Absolutely. And, Elizabeth, what are, what are the, what's the main thing that you want to see or hope to see come out of this research program? Look, I, I was excited by the, the dynamic modelling because we put programs in, but we actually don't have a way of knowing if they're going to work or have an adverse effect uh, on some other part of the system. But with the dynamic modelling, from what I've seen of it, we will be able to predict that. And so I think that that gives government more security about making investments in much needed areas. And so my hope is that we then have a bigger evidence base to actually improve our mental health system and improve the health of people overall. I couldn't agree more. I, When I first was introduced to dyna- dynamic systems modelling, I am not a mathematician. I, uh, you know, can occasionally solve an equation, but I rely on Siri and my calculator for sure. But seeing the fact that and knowing the fact that we can safely like you were saying elizabeth see and and project forward five years ten years safely see how this is going to affect young people and and community members uh in this intervention by testing it safely you know in, in hypothetical it is so wonderful to see that and again you know then therefore know okay that's a bit of a flop. Maybe we need to alter it or this is this is what we're hoping to achieve. This is a wonderful outcome. Sign sign the check sort of a thing. So, I mean, that's what a wonderful way to finish this episode is, is you know, highlighting the hope for change and, and the change around supporting young people and really making that service provision more targeted and more supportive by by getting around the young person and, and not the young person fitting the the service service providers and their options per se uh, but also knowing how to do that and how to do that safely through a dynamic systems model that is tailored to the ACT community so thank you so much Joey and and Elizabeth for joining me for a chat today it was it was really wonderful Thanks, Sam. Thanks, Joey. Yeah, thanks for having me. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode and want to listen to more, go back and binge our seasons. Chatting with experts on mental health challenges, what's behind them, and how we can better equip ourselves to face them together. Feel free to subscribe and rate us too. If you are on Instagram, head over and follow us there at the informed. T H E. F-O-R-M-D, The Informed Without the E, where I post weekly content related to the latest episode.